from 2Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, Fat Adapted Exercise. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Today's show centers around IDM patient Emily Wade, who found that while exercise didn't help her lose weight, the diet that did help her lose weight improved her exercise performance and endurance significantly. Emily is 39 years old, and for the last 12 years, she's been on what she calls a health journey. In 2008, uh, I became pregnant with uh, my first one of my first children, and uh, I ended up gaining a significant amount of weight during that pregnancy, and I'm not exactly sure why. At her peak during the pregnancy, just before she went into labor, she was over 200 pounds. I ended up going into preterm labor at 24 weeks, and I was over 200 pounds at that point, even though um, I was not very far along in my pregnancy. The baby was born too early, and after a very, very stressful time of um, trying to keep him alive in the NICU and just eating anything we possibly could to survive that time in our lives, um, I wasn't really focused on myself during that time of trying to keep myself pregnant and um, trying to keep the baby alive. For example, trying to when I was in the hospital, trying to not go into labor, all I wanted to do was make the baby gain weight. So I was telling my friends that were coming up to the hospital to like, bring me, you know, fast food, bring me milkshakes, bring me whatever you can, because hopefully this baby will also gain weight. Unfortunately, the baby did not survive. So the grief and the stress that Emily was feeling from losing her baby, really took its toll on her metabolism. You know, the beginning of the grieving process, you know, I was just eating pints of Ben & Jerry's ice cream and, um, you know, trying to muster the energy to get around. And I had to go to a choir concert not very long after I lost him, probably like two months or so. And... um a little bit later, I saw a photograph of myself, and I had no idea I had gotten that large. And I thought, there's got to be something wrong with this camera. And then, of course, I was still very sad and, um, and all of that, too, on top of it. And so I s Im immediately snapped into control mode. Okay, I could not control what happened to my son. I could not control what happened with my body during pregnancy, but I can control this. I can get a handle on my weight. And so this was, you know, early 2009 that this was going on. And so, of course, like many women, I did Weight Watchers. Weight Watchers, for those who don't know, is a point-based system, but the diet is fundamentally calorie restriction and low fat. 
I had great success with Weight Watchers, quite frankly. Um, I lost all the weight. I was even in a contest at work where everybody put money into a pool once a week. And at the end, whoever lost the much weight, most weight got the money and I won. And with the money, I went and bought myself some new clothes that would fit. Emily was exercising a lot, running and taking spin classes almost every day. I lost about 50 pounds. By the time the contest was over and I went through the Weight Watchers and hit my goal weight, I was like 140, 138. I managed to stay that way with exercise and still counting my points. Um, however, I don't think I realized at the time, uh, I felt awful all the time. I was always having, you know, like digestive issues. Gas, stomach pain, bloating, urgent bowel movements watery stool, that kind of thing. I was tired and um, just hungry, just downright hungry because, you know, I'm counting my points. Hi, Richard here. I'm the other keto dude. I did Weight Watchers back in the 90s, and back then this was a low-fat, high-fiber, calorie-restricted diet. It probably hasn't changed too much. We had so many points in the day that we could use, we drew down our supply of points when we ate foods containing fat, and we gained some back when we ate foods containing fiber. Weight Watchers diets may have changed since then, but the bottom line was these diets restrict the amount of calories that you eat and encourage you to use up more calories with exercise, with the theory being that your body would make up the arrears from body fat. But the reason we feel tired all the time is because when we calorie restrict, our metabolic rate drops. Eventually, most people get tired of feeling tired all the time. And when they stop restricting, their now lowered metabolic rate ensures that they put all that weight back on, and then some. In October 2009, Emily got pregnant with her daughter. And so while I was pregnant with her, uh, I was a little bit, I, I, I watched what I ate a little bit, but it was still very much the standard American diet. Because, you know, with Weight Watchers, they don't necessarily, you just count points for the food you eat. They don't say, you know, stay away from gluten, stay away from grains, stay away from eating too much fruit, um, you know, 100 calorie pack of pretzels has the same point value as like an avocado. I was still eating processed food. I was still eating a lot of, you know, bread and those kinds of things. Emily was put on bed rest and wasn't able to exercise. And then gestational diabetes. I ended up getting put on bed rest, so I would prevent preterm labor, which meant very limited movement. Um, and then I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes when I was pregnant with her. So um, the eye-opening, kind of an eye-opening experience for that was when I was pregnant with her, I um, with gestational diabetes, of course, it's a lower carb diet. I'm still, you know, not a low carb diet, lower carb. You could have about 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrates per meal. Um, but it's still, if you're pregnant, you're supposed to still eat six times a day. Um, you know, you eat your breakfast and then you have a snack and then eat lunch and then have a snack and then eat dinner. And sometimes if you're still hungry later on that night, you eat a snack again. Since I was on bed rest, I did a lot of meal planning. Um, but the one thing that was kind of eye-opening about the gestational diabetes experience was that from the moment I got diagnosed and adjusted my diet, I did not gain another pound until she was born. 
So although with my son, I had gained a good 80 pounds and he was born at 24 weeks, with my daughter, I only gained 28 pounds total and she was born at, at 38 weeks. So I did notice, wow, you know, but part of me, I think, because I was still being fed that information that you're supposed to eat six times a day, thought maybe, well, maybe it was because I was, you know, keeping my metabolism up with the eating six times a day. After the birth of her daughter, Emily went back on Weight Watchers. Got my point values and got that baby weight off. It didn't take near as long as it did the first time. And I was back down. But once again, never understood why my stomach hurt all the time. <laughs> never understood why I was tired all the time or why I was hungry all the time. Because I should have been getting enough calories. She was exercising hard every day and lost more weight. Still exercising frequently, going running about five miles a couple times a week and doing spin class three to four times a week. Here are some of Dr. Fung's thoughts on exercising to lose weight. So exercise is often considered sort of one of the key pillars of weight loss. And I think that this has been a bit of a marketing job for most people. The, uh, the connection is supposedly calories. So it's really exercise as a uh, weight loss method really ties very closely into this sort of calories in, calories out model. That is, if you eat two cookies, uh, which are 100 calories, you can go run for half an hour or 45 minutes and burn off those calories, and the, the end is the same. It turns out that there's really nothing the same about it. Uh, the pathways that are involved are completely different. When you eat cookies, for example, you're eating a lot of sugar with a lot of refined carbohydrates. The uh, glucose that you're eating is going to cause insulin to go up and it's going to cause you to gain weight. The sugar that you eat will go into your liver. It will cause fatty liver, which will create a lot of insulin resistance. So uh, cookies are very bad for you and they're very fattening and most people have accepted that. But it's not a very good sort of marketing tool if you're making cookies or making uh, sports drinks and sugar-sweetened beverages because people know it's fattening, so you have to sort of sell it that this is not that bad for you as long as you exercise, you can eat your cookies. Uh, the, when you exercise, there's a lot of really good things that happen. Um, if you exercise, say cardio, for example, you're you're getting your heart to pump. If you do resistance exercises, you're exercising your muscles. In either case, whenever you put something under stress, your body initially sustains some minor damage and then repairs itself in order to cope with that ongoing stress. So when you exercise, uh, say you're doing weights, you, you live, lift very heavy weights, you get micro tears in your muscles. And what happens is when you rest, your body uh, builds the muscle stronger so that you can, take, uh, you can lift the heavier weight. So that's how you uh, gain muscle. Cardio uh, exercises are the same. You uh, exercise your heart, and your heart becomes a little thicker and uh, more able to handle it. It has nothing to do with the liver, which is sort of what happens to all the calories that you eat. That is, if you eat a whole bunch of cookies, then your insulin is going to go up, it's going to give you fatty liver, you're going to eat a lot of sugar, it's going to go to your fatty liver. Um, at no time do those sort of uh, pathways intersect. So it's not like you can undo the damage of all that sugar just by exercising. 
it doesn't work that way. And this is perhaps um, the experience of uh, Professor Tim Noakes. It began on the 12th of December, <laughs> 2010. So that shows how important it was to me. So that was the day that I finished off a book called Waterlogged and sent it off to my publishers. And it was a 30-year odyssey proving that you could drink too much during exercise and problems could develop. And anyway, uh, when I'd finished, I hadn't been running enough in the last month or two or perhaps even longer. And I went to bed that night and my brain woke me up and said, you've got to get up tomorrow morning and run at six o'clock and you must run every day for the rest of your life. I think he had done 70 marathons um, all through his life, one of the premier sports scientists in the world. And he developed type 2 diabetes because he was drinking a lot of sugar because he thought that the exercise would take care of all that sugar, but it does not. So, of course, I listened to my instructions and I went out. I had a dreadful run. I came home and I opened my emails and there was an advert for a book called The New Atkins for the New You, written by three, three guys, Westman, Foley, Volick and Finney. And I said, what a disgrace. These guys have sold out to Atkins. And I said, it's unbelievable. I really trusted them as good scientists and now they've sold out. And then my brain said to me, now hold on, what happens if they're right? <laughs> so I said, oops, I better find out. <laughs> so I went straight down to the bookshop. I bought the book. And within two hours, I realized that for 33 years, I'd got it wrong and I'd been given the wrong advice. So I decided to experiment on myself. I had an incredibly good result. Then I discovered that I had type 2 diabetes because of my family history. My dad died of the disease. And then I realized that, you know, I was going to go the same way unless I did something. And so I embraced the low-carb diet and benefited enormously from it. What I always say is that, remember, exercise is good for you. No doubt. You get strength, you get flexibility, you get all kinds of benefits from exercise. But weight loss is not really one of them. Diabetes, not so much. So diet is diet and exercise is exercise and don't confuse the two. If you have weight to lose, if you have type 2 diabetes, those are dietary problems. You need to fix it with diet. You can't fix it with exercise. If, on the other hand, you're not strong enough, uh, you want better flexibility, you want to be able to run without getting out of breath, well, that's an exercise problem. So you need to exercise in order to get better. It's not like you can simply diet and then gain muscle. It doesn't work that way. If you diet, you'll lose weight, but you're not going to gain muscle. You don't gain muscle until you start lifting those weights and subjecting your body to sort of higher stress. So that's the big mistake that almost everybody makes. And it's because people tell us this. Um, uh, there's a lot of marketing. And um, remember that the, the big food companies, it's not simply advertising. They sponsor a lot of medical conferences, a lot of researchers, for example. They spend a lot of money giving um, uh, research grants to doctors and universities to tell you that, oh, hey, you can exercise your way to a healthier weight. And you can't, really. When her daughter was two and a half, Emily got pregnant with her son. And her pregnancy experience turned out to be very much like last time. My daughter was two and a half, got pregnant with my son. Um, same story, bed rest with him. 
Um, I didn't get diagnosed with gestational diabetes with him for some reason, although he was much larger than she was. And I did end up gaining about 45 pounds with him. Um, But I still did the standard American diet with him. And just like last time, after he was born, she went right back to Weight Watchers. Went back to Weight Watchers after he was born. (laughs) That whole bit, still curious as to why. But by the time my son was born, even more things were happening with my body. Um, I was getting plantar fasciitis all the time when I ran. Plantar fasciitis is an inflammation of the heel. Uh, I had really bad acne, which is something I never even had as a teenager. Um, Of course, my stomach problems had gotten just so bad that I thought it was coffee, and I almost gave up coffee, and I was trying all these different things, and I thought I had really bad candida, so I did, you know, all these candida cleanses. Nothing really worked, but I still was following that whole, like, you know, old information of you needing to snack, needing to follow the old food pyramid. So I was still, you know, eating pasta and bread and beans and um, and all of that. So, but just still couldn't figure it out. Pasta, beans and bread are all foods high in starch. That starch, we start turning into glucose as soon as it hits the saliva in our mouths. That raises insulin, which locks fat inside our fat cells. So if we then calorie restrict, we end up using other sources of energy, like lean tissue. And that should cause body fat as a percentage of total body weight to rise. In January of 2015, Emily had the opportunity to get a DEXA scan. A friend of hers had access to a DEXA scan machine and offered to give her one every six months. This turned out to be a critical piece of Emily's story. I had this friend who decided to go uh, become like a health and lifestyle educator. She wanted me to go have a DEXA scan done because she was using the information from this DEXA scan now to coach her clients into what they needed to do um, to fix their diet. And I hadn't even, at this point, I hadn't even heard of fasting. I had not really even heard of the ketogenic diet. And so just to help her out, to be her guinea pig, I went and got on the DEXA scan. At this point in time in my life, I was about 138 pounds in what I thought was good shape. However, you know, I was tired all the time, had all these skin issues. My stomach hurt all the time, you know, all the things I already said. Um, but, you know, I was I was at the ideal weight and uh, I was exercising all the time. And, you know, I was eating what I thought was quote unquote healthy. So I go to her DEXA scan machine and she gives me my body scan And um, when I get it back, I find out that at 138 pounds, which is right in the right where I need to be for BMI, I was 39% fat. Emily was a toffee, thin on the outside and fat on the inside. She knew she had done the wrong things, but didn't know what they were or how to correct it. I was shocked. When I saw that, my jaw about hit the floor and it made me go, oh my gosh, for at least the last, you know, 10 years of my life, I have been doing everything wrong, but yet I don't really know what it is that I was doing wrong to make it right. I mean, the good thing was, was that she, there were some other numbers in there that showed that I was like, had minimal toxicity and those kinds of things, thank goodness, which is kind of surprising considering how bad my digestion was. After this revelation about her body fat, 
Emily started to research like crazy. So the very first thing I did was I found out about the fact that I was exercising all wrong. Number one, I was exercising way too much. Number two, I was doing way too much cardio. So the very first thing I did was I started with like uh, that method called burst training where I would just drive my heart rate up for a minute and let it drop. And I did that for several months and, and that did something and I eliminated processed food, like completely processed grains and processed everything from my diet. But I was still eating like quinoa and I would occasionally have beans, you know, almost paleo, but not quite. In June of 2015, Emily got her second DEXA scan. She was cautiously optimistic because she was trending in the right direction. My body fat percentage had dropped about 3% because I'd, I'd slowed down on my exercise and I'd eliminated processed food, um, but I weighed the exact same. So I could tell that my body was adjusting. My lean mass went up. So I was down to about 37, 36% body fat six months later. And I was like, well, this is moving kind of slowly. Studying burst training led her online to the Whole30 program. And in July, she tried it. By day 13, she felt amazing. I have never felt that great in my life. My stomach aches had completely disappeared. My skin was like incredibly clear. And I thought, oh my gosh, where has this been all my life? I have never felt so good. I'm never going back. After hearing Leanne Vogel's podcast, Emily slowly started to cut carbs. And by the end of October 2015, Emily was completely ketogenic. And was loving it. I got to the point where I was like intermittent fasting, but I didn't really. So I was eating it like by 10 o'clock every day when my last meal was at 6 you know, or five, five or six the night before. Even though she felt better, Emily was still having some problems. There were still some things that weren't completely fixed. I would still get stomach problems occasionally. Um, not as bad, but just occasionally. Um, there were certain things, like, for example, if I tripped up and, like, had a biscuit or something like that, the next day it was like, you know, the, the end of the world. So what about her plantar fasciitis? The plantar fasciitis was still, like, pretty much constant by this. You know, I, it had been constant for, you know, since my son was six months old, and it was still constant. And I didn't think anything of anything besides, you know, resting it and putting ice on it or, um, you know, going to see a chiropractor. I didn't think anything else would ever help that. I didn't think that either one of those things could be related. I went to a chiropractor for an entire year to try to get rid of it, and nothing happened. It got a little bit better, but it never completely got better. And I was keto during that time. Emily's next DEXA scan, one year from her first, January 2016, was a bit more encouraging. I had dropped 13% body fat by that point, and that was because of keto. Somewhere in that time frame, Emily heard Dr. Jason Fung being interviewed by Leanne Vogel on her podcast. I was just mesmerized by the things that he was saying about fasting. And, um, and I'd heard other people say it, like there's a guy named Dr. Dan Pompa that talks about it and um, a couple of other people out there um, that, you know, have, have forums and blogs that talk about fasting. But listening to Jason talk on her podcast was so interesting to me. 
um, because he was, you know, he's so scientific. And I know, you know, like the rants that he gets on. So she started listening to Fasting Talk with Jimmy Moore and Jason Fung. But she wasn't quite sure she needed fasting or even if she could fast. In June of 2016, Emily had her next DEXA scan. She discovered something she wasn't really prepared for. Her body fat went up by 6%. It was 2016 is when it dawned on me around June of 2016 that I realized that I was putting on weight. Um, So trying to figure out what I had been doing, you know, doing more research, studying. Even though Emily wasn't losing weight and her body fat percentage went up a little bit, she still felt like she had some metabolic flexibility because of the ketogenic diet. If I did have a slip up, I mean, I could be back in ketosis by the next morning. Um, I'm still that way now. I don't necessarily know if I want to say I was cocky, but I was like, eh, I don't know if I need that. Something else is going on. Maybe I'm building muscle. So Emily got to this point where she was like, hmm, maybe that fasting stuff is exactly what I need. Now, mind you, I've listened to uh, Jason on a few podcasts by this point. Um, And I've listened to other people talk about fasting on podcasts and read articles. I had no idea, like, you know, late summer, early fall, that IDM even had a program. In October of 2016, Emily heard Jimmy Moore talking about the Complete Guide to Fasting. She immediately ordered the book. And that's where she found out about the IDM program. So she started toying with the idea of doing some more fasting, but... She didn't really feel like she had support from friends, family, doctors, or the local community. She felt very much alone. If I was to take on any fasting, I thought I was going to have to do it myself. Um, And I don't know if you're familiar with Oklahoma or not, um, but people who live, we're probably one of the most obese states in all of the United States. She didn't find anyone in the local community who knew anything about fasting. They're not up to date on the latest research on diet and um, still very much following the standard American diet. Um, Even though I have, I feel like I have a good physician, there's not necessarily in the the medical field like a push for nutrition to fix illnesses. So I thought I would never have my doctor support on doing something like fasting. So I just wasn't really sure where to start at all. My version of the intermittent fast was still like a couple of cups of fat coffee and then eating lunch, you know? After devouring the complete guide to fasting in November of 2016, Emily decided to try a 24-hour fast. And I remember I went to work and I was very busy at work and about two o'clock in the afternoon hit. And I realized... Yes, I really have been fasting this entire time, and I cannot believe how good I feel. I was in shock, and I remember thinking, this isn't, this isn't really happening. There's no way that I have gone almost, you know, almost 20 hours without food, and I feel like this. This can't be. After that, Emily committed to two 24-hour fasts every week. So about midway through the December, I wanted to see if the fasting was doing anything. So once again, I go to my friend with the DEXA scan machine, handy schmandy DEXA scan machine, and my body fat had barely dropped at all. 
Granted, I hadn't given it that long, but it was still like discouraging. You know, I thought I, this either isn't working for me or um, I'm not doing something right or whatever, even though I felt amazing. Like I felt way better than I've ever felt in my life just doing two 24-hour fasts a week. That same month, December 2016, Emily decided to join the IDM program. I was like, that's it. I'm going to I'm going to call IDM. We have some extra money. <laughs> I'm going to just pull the trigger and I'm going to do this. Or so I, you know, did the website request and then Megan and I did a did a couple of email exchanges and then she um set up a phone call with me. She met with Megan Ramos, which turned out to be a very motivating phone call. We spoke and she told me her whole story and I was I was floored by the things that she had experienced and how much fasting had like changed her life and um you know and of course I told her my story more of an abbreviated version that I'm telling you but I told her you know what got me to this point and we kind of toyed with what I could have been doing over the last 6 months with my keto diet to get me to this point When Emily first started with the IDM program, she was pretty much already following a ketogenic diet. And that's Megan Ramos, director of the IDM program. Because Emily was already uh, quite keto adapted, before she started IDM, fasting was pretty easy for her. She was able to do five-day fasts very effortlessly. It worked well for her, too, because of her kids. Um, she's got two young kids. They keep her really busy. Um, she has an extremely active life. So instead of rushing and stressing about trying to eat throughout the week, Monday through Friday, when you know kids got to be at soccer, kids got to be at hockey, or any of their various sports, swimming, um, all these crazy things, she didn't have to stress about trying to make herself food. She could just fast throughout the week and then eat on the weekends with her family and really sort of enjoy. Megan thought the stress may have been a major reason for her stall and perhaps too many fat coffees. You know, she's a firm believer in if you're if you're under a lot of stress, it doesn't really matter what you do um, as far as you know, diet and and weight loss and fasting because you might not gain any weight, but you're not going to lose any until you get the stress under control. There was a period of time shortly after Emily first started the IDM program where weight loss just completely stalled despite her doing all these fasts and her ketogenic diet. Um, she wasn't losing uh, body fat. She wasn't losing any inches anywhere. But Emily's life was just ridden with stress for a few months back to back. I felt so sorry for her each time I talked to her, you know, the colleagues at work dying, stress at work, you know, someone else being sick and um, being on their deathbed. Their, her kids were just kept trading back in one infection after another. One of the things we discussed on one of my very first meetings was, uh, you know, it was good that I was doing two 24-hour fasts a week, but... Um, to up it. She wanted me to at least be doing 72 hours a week. So I started off doing like, you know, three 24 hour fasts, but, um, a week and, you know, not eating breakfast any day except for like maybe Sunday. And that usually turned into brunch. And, um, she was really good about talking about how fasting would fit, you know, make fasting fit your social life. You know, don't make it be this thing that, makes you feel like you're always missing out. Um, So I took all that 
advice to heart and I figured out ways for to make fasting work with work for me so at first I found it a much easier to just fast during the day while I was working and eat with my family at night Um, and I did that for quite a while after a month or two Megan suggested she do an overnight 72 hour fast Um, I remember after about Probably, I was probably a month or two being in the IDM program. I can't remember exactly, but I remember when she was like, okay, Emily, I'm ready for you to try to go overnight. And I was like, oh gosh, you know, I was like, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I could go overnight, even though I was successful at 24 hours. And so I go overnight and the very first time I tried overnight, I had trouble sleeping, I will say, but that was it. It only happened to me one time. And after that, going overnight was no problem. And then the next thing you know, I was doing 48-hour fasts. And then I was going into like four or five days. Five days is still the longest I've ever gone. But I've done I've done four to five-day fasts multiple times. So a fasting regimen like that, where you do fast Monday through Friday, is pretty aggressive and it definitely doesn't work well for everyone. But for Emily's lifestyle, it alleviated a lot of pressure on her, pressure to eat right, um, pressure to make that time to cook so she can eat right and stay on track with her life. Emily is a teacher and in the summertime, Emily, she has about six weeks off, six or eight weeks off with her kids. And then during then, um, that period of time in her holiday time, she had a lot more availability to focus on food preparation and eating well. So throughout the school year, Emily did a lot of these five day fasts because they fit into her lifestyle. And during the summertime when she was home, she focused a lot on good clean eating and working on her time restricted eating windows. So she had a nice balance. There was one day she remembers fondly when Emily told Megan. I said, one of the things I figured out is that it's so exciting to not have to plan meals. And she was like, you've arrived, Emily, you've arrived. You've like been able to completely flip this and see and see what it's about. And uh, yeah, and still to this day, I love my fasting days because I do not have to think about what I'm going to eat. And now we arrive at the central theme of today's podcast. Emily found that exercising while fasted was really awesome. She encouraged me to try to go exercise after a 48-hour fast and take advantage of that growth hormone. And I remember how scary that was at first. One of the things that Emily stopped when she first started fasting was exercise. And to her, that was very therapeutic. So I encouraged her, I said, you've got to go back. You've got to to start working out again. It will help you cope with the stress, which it did. So Emily got back in the gym. She was working out um, whenever she could find time um, with her kids and with work. And that had a huge impact on her controlling the stress in her life. So the weight ball started rolling again. The very first time I did it was probably one of the best workouts I've ever had. Like ever. 
Now, she was really leery about exercise and fasting, and and a lot of people are, um, but there's really nothing to be concerned about when exercising in a fasted state, as long as you're fasting with medical supervision, you're making sure that you're well hydrated, you have um, a doctor or a healthcare team monitoring your hydration levels, so all your electrolytes and your kidney function. So Emily had a good doctor. She had us helping her. Um, her doctor was excited that she was working with us. And so then I started to do all of my workouts fasted. All of them. I was going to the gym and I was lifting like heavier weights than I had ever lifted. Fasted. High intensity workouts. Fasted. Spin classes, fasted, when people think, oh, you know, where the old school of thought was, you need so many carbs, you need so many carbs to make it through something like that. Proper hydration is critical when doing any kind of exercise fasted. So Megan came up with a plan for Emily to stay hydrated. About 90 minutes before she'd work out, she'd hydrate with some salt water or some bone broth. And then that way, um, her body, her muscles, they were able to absorb that hydration and those electrolytes before she started her working out, her workout. Here's IDM counselor Brenda Zorn telling her own story of how she took her weight training to the next level by fasting. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I kind of have a bit of a history with lifting. I was interested in it before I even discovered keto. And it's interesting to note just how much I was able to lift before I got well. Because when I started keto and then went to lift at the gym, I immediately was able to double the amount of weight that I had been lifting. So I got really interested in weightlifting because all of a sudden I could lift quite a bit uh, on keto. And um Oh, when I was first on keto, probably the first year I was ketogenic, uh, I was either eating breakfast or drinking a Bulletproof coffee, which is fine. But when I happened to stop that, because I just wasn't hungry in the morning anymore, I noticed I could lift even better. And then I was about 14 hours fasted. Matter of fact, it was almost like rocket fuel kicked in. It was crazy how much I could lift and how good I felt, and that I never felt tired. Some people gave me a hard time because I started out on the regular machines and I wasn't in the free weight area. I planned on going there eventually, but I needed to be trained how to properly use those weights. When I started on the the free weight leg press, I had been pressing about 400 pounds on the regular machines. On the free weight leg press, the first time I got on there, I did 600 pounds. Um, And I thought, huh, well, I really like this. And uh, so I just almost weekly added weight to it. And... I got to the point where, was it maybe just before Keto Fest or was it last fall? I don't know. But um, I easily worked my way up to 800 pound lifts. I do better on, in a fasted state or in a ketogenic state exercising than I ever did on a standard American diet with lots of carbs. Ever. So, and I just don't think I ever would have done that if I didn't have Megan to push me. I don't think that I would have realized what my body was actually capable of. Here's Dr. Fung on the science behind why training in the fasted state really works. One of the things that people always think is that they need to eat before they exercise or they can't exercise unless they eat. And there's two parts to this. One is training in the fasted state and the second one is sort of uh, training while eating very low carb. 
So those are two separate questions. If you go to a very low carbohydrate diet, uh, people often think, well, your muscles need the, the sugar in order to burn. And that's not really true, but there is a period of adaptation between when you go from burning sugar sort of to burning fat. So if you uh, look at the muscles, the muscles actually um, have, are able to burn either sugar or fat. Um, if you eat a very ketogenic diet, for example, then the muscles will metabolize fatty acids. Adipose tissue, or body fat, stores energy as triglycerides, which is a glycerol molecule with three fatty acids attached to it. If you eat very low, very low carbohydrate diets, like a ketogenic diet, then there's really not enough glucose to power your whole body. In a low carbohydrate athlete, the body is using fatty acids as the fuel for making energy instead of using glucose. This fatty acid could come from either fat in our diets or fat we've previously stored in adipose tissue, body fat. Your muscles don't care where that fatty acid comes from. In a fasted athlete, that will come from body fat. In a ketogenic athlete, a combination of fat in the diet and from body fat. That is why people who first adapt to a ketogenic diet seem to find it easier to fast. They have all the machinery necessary to thrive in a fat-burning mode. So the uh, triglycerides gets broken into three fatty acids, and most of the body will actually directly use these fatty acids. So your muscles can use it. But if you haven't been used to fasting or ketogenic diets, your performance will suffer in the short term. So two to three weeks, you, you don't really have the ability to efficiently use that fat because your muscles are so used to burning glucose or glycogen. Glycogen is a storage form of glucose. It's actually a kind of starch or long chain of glucose molecules. The liver stores some glycogen that is used as a buffer to keep your brain functioning. And your muscle cells all have their own small storage reservoir of glycogen that is used exclusively for the muscle to use for energy. When you change people over to a uh, ketogenic diet or to fasting, what you find is that the, uh, the machinery sort of to, that is necessary to burn fat actually gets ramped up. So your, your, your muscles, because now you're burning fat all the time, become much more efficient at burning fat. And that's what happens. And that's the reason that there's this sort of period of adaptation as you go from a higher carb to a lower carb diet. Sometimes people call it a keto flu. If you're measuring performance on an athletic basis, you don't want to do this switch immediately uh, during a uh, sort of a competition because you're going to do poorly. So initially people may feel that, may find that their performance actually gets worse. But over time, what they find is that the performance sort of comes back. And that's one of the reasons that we have a lot of sort of elite athletes who are switching over to this ketogenic diet and low carbohydrate diet and so on, LeBron James and all these other um, athletes uh, who perform on a sort of world stage. So if it's good enough for them, it's usually good enough for everybody else. Just to switch over to a ketogenic diet is the real important thing. Now, fasting is much the same thing, but it sort of amps it up again 
because one, you are trying to get into this fat burning stage. So as you do that, you're going to be able to metabolize the fat easier, but then you actually set into motion certain hormonal changes. So during fasting, insulin goes down and other hormones, which are called the counter-regulatory hormones, go up. The goal of these counter-regulatory hormones is to sort of bring energy to your system because glucose is going down from the food, so you need to push it back out from your body stores out into the blood. And this is sort of basic physiology, and it's well known and well described for many, many years. So there's several components to the counter-regulatory surge. So one of them is an increase in the sympathetic nervous system. So your body has a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system, and the sympathetic nervous system is sort of the activation uh, system, the fight or flight response. Your pupils dilate, for example, your, um, your, your heart rate starts to increase, you become more alert. Imagine that you're, 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 you're suddenly staring at a big bear in front of you. You're, gonna, you're going to start flooding your system with energy. You're going to dilate your pupils so that you can see better. You're going to be hyper alert uh, so that you can run away or start to fight. And this is mediated by uh, nerves throughout the body, uh, such as the vagus nerve and so on. And uh, this is sort of an instinctual response, but that is part of this counter-regulatory hormone. So you're pushing glucose into the system, but there's all these other benefits. The second one is adrenaline and noradrenaline. So that's, um, it basically does the same thing, gives your body a big boost in terms of energy and performance because your body wants to be able to run faster or fight better so you can get out of that situation alive. And third thing is growth hormone which is very interesting and we'll talk about that later. So if you're talking about training in the fasted state, not only are you going to get everything that you get with switching over to a sort of low carbohydrate diet in terms of metabolism of fat during that performance, but you're also going to get the added benefit of sort of this um, aroused uh, state which is from the, the sympathetic nervous system and noradrenaline. So you're actually gonna be able to train harder and your performance may actually be better because of this sort of hormonal uh, boost. So everybody thinks that they, if they don't eat, they're going to uh, suffer in terms of performance, but it's actually the opposite. If you don't eat, you may find that you perform a lot better. The other uh, issue is the growth hormone. Then what's the purpose of that? Well. Once you start to eat again, then your body, with all its growth hormone, is able to rebuild a lot of this tissue faster. So in essence, when you're training in the fasted state, you're taking advantage of this sort of uh, situation where you're going to be able to train harder and recover faster. So if you're, doing, if you're training at a very elite level, um, then you want to take advantage of this because this sort of manipulation is completely free. It's not like something you have to uh, pay for. It's not like steroids where you're going to pay a price in terms of your health. Training in the fastest state is this sort of uh, free boost to your training system if, if, if you uh, are willing to take it. 
So we have a number of sort of professional uh, level athletes who have talked to us about uh, doing this. And so we've helped them do this and they've really found it beneficial. So, uh, you know, it is something that uh, is, is a whole change in attitude from before. And I don't, and I don't say that necessarily everybody has to do it. But on the other hand, if you want to give it a try, see how it goes. Just make sure you give yourself two to three weeks to get used to it before deciding whether it's for you or not. When she first started fasting, Emily tried a little apple cider vinegar in water to help with hunger. Well, it tore her stomach to shreds. She thought she may have even been allergic to it. Still, she stuck with the sea salt, which had always helped her feel better while fasting. You know, my stomach problems definitely got better with keto than they were when I had st standard American diet, but they were still occasionally there. And they just, with when I started the fasting in uh, January, they just started getting fewer and further between. And so that's how I figured out was the apple cider vinegar at first. But then it was like, even if I had a weekend where we went out to eat at a restaurant and I, you know, had some gluten or, you know, had something, you know, had some beans because beans used to be terrible for me. Um, then um, my stomach wouldn't really even hurt at all the next day. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. I wonder, I wonder why that is, you know, and I didn't really dawn on me. So then I was like, hmm, I'm going to try apple cider vinegar again. This time, no reaction. So I asked Megan, and I said, do you think that there was a chance that I, this all this time I've had leaky gut? And I didn't necessarily realize it was leaky gut, or if I did, I wasn't. And that fasting has healed my leaky gut? And she was like, I think that's totally possible. And so I am still to this day do not have near the digestive reactions to any of the things that used to give me like crazy digestive reactions before. I don't get bloated anymore. I don't hardly get doubled over in pain anymore. Um, apple cider vinegar, I have it all the time. Um, so I'm definitely a firm believer in the fact that I had, I had, leaky gut and that fasting cured it. After just three months in IDM, Emily was back down to her goal weight, 138 pounds. She has no PMS, no bloating, no cramps. Her periods are only four days long. Best of all, no more mysterious stomach issues. What was a daily norm of feeling ill turned completely around. Also, after just eight months of extensive fasting, she noticed that her heels never hurt anymore. No, no pain. And still to this day, no pain. I haven't changed anything about my activity levels or anything like that. I mean, I still walk around barefoot. Um, and some people say, oh, that exacerbates plantar fasciitis. I walk around barefoot all the time. Um, I go to high intensity workout class where my feet smack on the ground, um, but nothing. And I remember bringing this up to Megan, too. I was like, do you think, I, th I, I told her, I was like, I think that fasting has healed my plantar fasciitis. And what's so strange about that is like, I didn't, that is so far off from what I expected to happen. I didn't even think that those two things would even be in the same ballpark. Emily's last DEXA scan was September 2017. Her body fat was down to 30%, but it showed that she had lost some muscle mass about 10 pounds. But she was stronger than she'd ever been. 
Emily and Megan posit that it could have been junkie protein removed via autophagy. Yeah, I had never been that strong. In my, it, like I was lifting more weight than I ever had. Um, going and lifting like super heavy weights during a 48-hour or a 72-hour fast, like feeling incredible. I could see definition in my body, which is something I've never been able to see before. Like definition in my, um, in my abdomen and in my arms. Um, my legs had absolutely like... You can't even squeeze any skin off of them. They were so pure. The muscle was so, like, so tight in there. So I thought that it's it's got to be that it was junky protein because my body does not speak to the fact that I just lost 10 pounds of muscle. Exercise before keto and fasting was painful. Okay, well, you know, it was always like I dreaded exercise, but I thought it was something I just had to do. It was part of that control thing, especially after... Uh, losing my baby um but it was like afterwards I was zapped and now I can I don't know how to explain it but about mm, five ten minutes into my workout I get keto mouth I can feel my body go okay it's time to kick in those ketones you know, I feel that feeling in the back of my tongue the acetone or whatever and it's like incredible I can't believe how good I feel Brenda Zorn also never feels aches and pains after exercising. I easily worked my way up to 800 pound lifts. And I'm not talking about one lift. I'm not talking about towing it. I'm, I mean like a progression, 600 pounds, five times, 700 pounds, five times, you know, 780, whatever, all the way up to 800. And it was doable. I, it wasn't like I thought, oh my gosh, am I gonna be able to finish this? And I can't remember the last time I hurt after lifting. I don't have muscle soreness. I don't have muscle pain. And there's science behind that. One of the byproducts of cellular anaerobic metabolism is lactate. You've probably heard of muscle fatigue being caused by a buildup of lactic acid. Well, that's caused by that lactate. This is actually a very important molecule to those of us who are ketogenic because that lactate leaves our cells where it was created in the process of turning fuel into energy and makes its way to our livers where it becomes a source for gluconeogenesis. And that's how we make glucose when we don't eat sugar or starch. Our livers make glucose from that lactate. The cellular machinery on the outer membrane of our cells that transports that lactate out and into our circulation is called a monocarboxylate transport, or MCT. It turns out that that also transports ketones. One of the steps of keto adaptation is to build more of those transporters onto our cells because we will need to transport more ketones. Well, that also means that they will clear lactic acid faster. It seems that the transporter also works fastest when it's exchanging one carboxylate inside the cell, such as lactate, for one outside the cell, such as a ketone. So the more ketones you have in circulation, the faster your cells can clear lactic acid. So Emily... What's the hardest part about switching from burning glucose to burning fat for energy? One of the things that um, it's real hard for me, and you can probably probably relate, is when you know people that you love and people that you know. Um, you know, this is still not as widely known as this. You know, as other you know, as the standard American diet. But when you sit around and you hear how horrible people feel, 
right? You sit there and they complain about how, you know, I've got high blood pressure, I'm so tired, oh, you know, and all these ailments, um, you know, chronic headaches, migraines. I don't know how many people I know that have migraines. And I find myself biting my tongue all the time because I'm not really sure how to convey to them that that was me once. That was me. And, um, and I just decided that I was sick and tired of it. Thanks, Emily. You rocked it. Starting in February 2018, Emily is training to be a weightlifting instructor. And that's the story of Emily Wade. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.